At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, At Odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, to receive God's mission or to resent it. When you find yourself at odds with God, what is the thing that will help to bring you out of a situation like that? In his book, A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Aken talks about a time where he was at odds with God. The book chronicles the story of Van Aken and his wife, Jean Davis, or she goes by Davy in the book. And the book is an interesting story. It's a part love story. It's part adventure. It's a little bit of a tragedy. And it's also a wrestling with what God does in the midst of suffering. Van Aken met his wife, Davy, in college where they quickly fell in love with one another and got married. They were enthralled with one another. In fact, in the book, Van Aken counts how their marriage, their relationship, became for both of them their highest good, although he refers to it in one point as a pagan love. What they see in the early part of his life was there was an infatuation with each other, this love. They were going to be different than all the other love that they saw around them. Their relationship was what they pursued above all else. Eventually, both Van Aken and his wife through a series of things, would come to put their faith in Jesus. Davy was the first one to kind of go, Sheldon, or he went by Van, kind of reluctantly moved that way a little bit, until one day tragedy struck them. When Davy was diagnosed with a very rare liver disease that ultimately would result in complications that led to her death at the age of 40. Sheldon Van Aken was completely devastated at this point, even as in his journey of trusting Christ, he wrestled deeply with the reality of why would God take away my wife at such a young age. Van Aken, during his kind of journey into Christianity, even after his wife's death, began corresponding with C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian apologist at the time. And Lewis began to write Van Aken and challenge him a little bit as he wrestled through the reality of his wife's death. One of the things Lewis began to challenge Van Aken with is the idea that he had made their love an idol in his life, that he had loved that relationship more than he had trusted and loved God. And because of that, it was ultimately destroying his faith. At one point, Lewis challenges Van Aken to say that either the idol would have to die or his faith would die. And that the experience of his wife's death was, in Lewis's words, the fact that Van Aken had been treated with a severe mercy. That would become the title of Van Aken's book, Journeying the Reality of His Wife, A Severe Mercy. It wrestles deeply with the reality of how God works in the midst of deep pain. What does God do in the moments where we experience these challenging, harrowing, severe moments of our lives. Van Aken would eventually come to see this moment of his wife's death as a severe mercy that he experienced. In fact, at one book, point in the book, he writes, it was death, my wife's death, that was a severe mercy. There's no doubt at all that Lewis is saying precisely that. That death, so full of suffering for us both, suffering that overwhelmed my life, was yet a severe mercy. A mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. 
One of the things that can help us when we're in moments of spiritual defiance is a severe mercy. Spiritual defiance and spiritual apathy are serious issues that arise in our lives. We saw that at the very beginning of the book of Jonah. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we kicked off this book, and at the beginning of Jonah, God calls Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh to cry out against it. Jonah doesn't want to go there. He has no interest in obeying God for the city of Nineveh, and so he literally tries to go to the ends of the earth in the opposite direction. Jonah is spiritually defined, and we kicked off the series with the metaphor, the story of me sitting at odds with my son when he was young and didn't want to eat his eggs, and this moment where we were at odds together, and Recognize, though, through Jonah that all of us come to points and moments where we sit across the table from God and we're at odds with him. That there are things he calls us to that we simply don't want to give in. And we sit in these moments defiant, thinking that we know better than God. If we're not careful, what we see in Jonah's defiance is that moves to spiritual apathy. Where we don't start moving towards God, we actually move away from him within our lives. But one of the things that I think we have to recognize in these moments is that although spiritual defiance and spiritual apathy are serious, there's actually an even deeper issue that's underneath those moments where we're at odds with God. It's the issue of idolatry. Idolatry is when we come to trust in something that's created as being greater than the creator. It's taking something that God has made good and making it ultimate in our lives. Van Auken recognized that under his challenge, his moment of at odds with God was a greater idolatry. He had come to trust in his love with his wife more than he trusted God. And when she was removed from his life, he didn't know how to handle it at first. All of us struggle with idolatry. We struggle with trusting in things as ultimate that are not, in fact, God. And here's the truth. Every moment of spiritual defiance that you encounter in your life, every moment where you find yourself at odds with God, there is something underneath that that you trust more than you trust Him. And when the challenge comes, the sacrifice comes, often that's when that thing gets exposed. If you trust money more than you trust God, you'll follow God's call to money up to a point. But as soon as sacrifice is called for in a certain way, you'll pull back. If you trust in power or sex like our culture does more than you trust in God, you'll follow God's ways until it comes at odds with you and then you pull back. Every moment in your life where you see your unwillingness to follow God into what he's called us to do, where you find a hint of spiritual defiance, underneath that is something that you trust more deeply than God. And the question is, what does God do when we, he finds us in those situations? Just like a little kid that won't eat his eggs, how is God to respond in the moments where we simply say, I'm not going to follow you there? Well, what we see is that one of the things that God uses when we're in moments like that and what we're going to see in the life of Jonah is that God often uses a severe mercy to draw us out of the places of spiritual defiance and expose our issue of idolatry. 
So with that said, let's jump back into the story. I kind of caught you up a little bit. Remember, God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, he goes to Tarshish. He's on a boat. This is where we left Jonah last time. He was on a boat fleeing from God. God employs a big storm to pursue him. It gets so bad. Finally, Jonah says to the sailors, throw me overboard, and then God will save you. And at the end of the story that we left off last week, Jonah has been cast into the ocean, and the sailors have been rescued and brought to land. So that's where we're at in the story. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 17 and kind of see the next section. All right? Verse 17. And the Lord appointed. Now remember, when you see that word Lord in all capital letters in your Bible, that's signifying that that's the Hebrew covenant name for God, Yahweh. So Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah's thrown overboard. He's drowning in the ocean, and God appoints a giant fish to come and swallow him, and Jonah survives in this fish for three days. You want to talk about a severe mercy? This is Jonah's severe mercy. It's not enough that he's drowning. He gets rescued by then getting drawn into the belly of a fish. Now, I want to explore a little bit of the severe mercy of Jonah, but at this point, I think we just have to take a sidestep to deal with the issue of the fish, because it's usually where most people get hung up in the story of Jonah. You're like, wait, hold on, like, this guy lived in some fish for three days, that's where you're telling me that happened, like, how on earth are we supposed to actually understand that? Interpreters have taken kind of two lenses when it comes to how we understand the great fish in the story of Jonah. The first way that many people have understood it is that this actually happened. That Jonah was a real person, thrown in a real ocean, swallowed by a real fish. He lived in that fish for three days, and then he was spit out, and God used this story for the good of his people. Jonah was a real real person. He was a real prophet. That's accorded elsewhere in the Old Testament. Other people have come along and said, no, 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 that can't happen. Nobody lives in a fish for three days, right? That's just a parable or a metaphor that's used in the story as a way to challenge the audience of the book. So the fish plays a role. We're going to see in a moment that it plays a symbolic role, but they come along and say that didn't actually happen. So how do we deal with that? Well, in twofold, one, whether you think the fish happened or not, it doesn't necessarily change the reality of the book. The meaning of the fish is still there. But the question that I think it forces us to wrestle with, even as we talk about spiritual defiance, is as we come to the word of God, when we encounter moments like this, do we put ourselves under the word of God or do we put ourselves over the word of God? Do we trust what is presented to us or do we think we know better? First of all, One of the things I think we have to wrestle with, even when it comes to the fish, is it seems like Jesus believed that Jonah was a historical act. Jesus says in Matthew 12, just as the sign of Jonah will be given, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights. So Jesus assumes Jonah was actually in this fish, and just like that, I'm actually going to be in the grave. He seems to draw a historical connection. So if we're following Jesus, it seems like what Jesus already gives us what he thinks of the book. Now, the second thing that I think we have to wrestle with in the reality as Christians is for us to say, if we literally follow a a trust or a belief that 
Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights and rose from the dead, do you think it's so hard for God to keep someone in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? Like the foundation of our faith is that God works supernaturally in the world. And which is harder, surviving in a fish or being raised from the dead? So if God could do that in Jesus, certainly he could keep Jonah in the belly of the fish. So I would argue that it's historical, right? I don't think we come along and say, we actually know better than God. This couldn't happen, therefore it's not real. That to me strikes a little bit of arrogance of us coming and saying, we'll tell you, God, what your word is like instead of letting Jesus interpret God's word for us and what it said. So, I believe the fish is literal. If you want to have a debate about that, find me afterwards. So, but the next question then is, okay, so we got that out of the way. The next question though, that we have to deal with is, what is the fish a symbol of? What is the fish? Why does he enter into the story at this point? So remember, Jonah is spiritually defiant. The whole text is he's moving downward and away from God. And literally, he's thrown overboard into the sea. Now, the sea in the Jewish mind is the symbol. It's the heart of evil and chaos in the world. Jews were land people. They didn't like the sea. The sea felt unnatural to them. And they saw that as the realm of evil and chaos. And it plays that role in this book. So the idea is Jonah has been thrown into the heart of the sea, this evil and chaos that has happened. His kind of downward spiral has kind of reached this climactic moment, and then God, out of nowhere, appoints this fish. What's this fish all about? Well, the fish comes, again, the idea of a great fish or a sea monster we see throughout kind of the Old Testament language is another symbol of God's judgment, of God's bringing and dealing with evil. But in this circumstance, the fish doesn't come to just be a symbol of judgment for Jonah. It actually acts as a symbol of deliverance for Jonah. That although he should just drown, he doesn't. The fish somehow comes and saves Jonah. And the fish serves as this incredible symbol of both judgment and deliverance. That God both judges Jonah for his sin, but he uses that judgment to deliver Jonah from the reality of his sin and ultimately move him towards what God's goal is for him. God is the sort of God that can use judgment as a means to bring deliverance. We see this no greater than what we just sang about and worshiped in Jesus, right? That Jesus assumes our judgment for us. That although we were sinful and because of that deserve judgment and separation from God, God in his love sends his son to die for us so that then we could be delivered from our sin and risen again. And when we trust in him, we die the death with Jesus and we're raised again. That's what we just celebrated in baptism. And that's what we see even alluded to here in the book of Jonah. So Jonah, the fish, becomes this symbol of judgment and deliverance. That's where we use the phrase severe mercy, using from Aachen's book. That there's this element of the fish that is both the worst, but it's also a means by which God moves mercifully to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in Jonah. Tim Keller, the Longtime pastor in New York City says it this way. He says, the great fish is a perfect example of such a severe mercy. Obviously, the fish saved Jonah's life by swallowing him. But on the other hand, he was still in a watery prison. He was still sinking to the bottom of the world, to the roots of the mountains, far from help and, ho help and hope. He was still alive, but for how long? Jonah's in this tension in the fish between judgment and deliverance. And it's through this act of God's severe mercy that we begin to rea realize the way God engages us through severe mercy in our spiritual defiance to bring us back 
to himself and his purposes for us. The first thing we see right away here and remind ourselves of is that God often employs severe mercy to pursue us. God wants to pursue Jonah. So what does he do? He appoints this fish. God shows his sovereign control over all things in this moment. This word appoint is actually going to be used four times strategically in the book of Jonah. And in every time it's used, both here in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, it's God appointing something of his creation to be used in the means of bringing Jonah back to what God's purposes and intention were for him. So he comes along and he appoints this fish. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that the fish obeys God even when Jonah was disobedient. But nonetheless, he swallows up Jonah, and we see this act of severe mercy in God bringing Jonah back to himself. Jonah being in the fish, experiencing this moment, is a reminder to us that Jonah's rebellion rebellion hasn't left him outside of God's mercy, but in fact, he's right in the middle of it, even in a harrowing circumstance like being in the belly of a fish. This is often how God pursues us. God often brings us to terrible moments in our life, severe moments, because not out of his anger, but out of his love, out of his desire to bring us into a place of relationship from our sin with him. The writer of Hebrews reminds us this in Hebrews 12 where he says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Because God brings you into severe moments in life, you should be more weary when God doesn't bring you into those moments than you should when you face them. Because it's often the way God will pursue us in our spiritual defiance to bring us back to himself. So we see this work in Jonah. But then as we follow the story, the author seems to kind of insert something in the story that draws our attention away a little bit from the narrative. Right? If you, if you were just to read Jonah from verse 17 to 2-10, or, or verse 10 of chapter 2, sorry, without ever reading the prayer, this is how it would sound. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Pretty nice, even narrative flow there, right? Like, he's in the belly, God appoints it, he gets out. Yet, somehow on this, there's these nine verses that are put in the middle of Jonah praying from the belly of the fish. Why this? Why not just continue the story up to this point? Well, clearly the author is wanting to do something through these words, through this prayer of Jonah. What does he want us to do? I think he wants us to consider God's nature and work in the midst of Jonah's spiritual defiance. He wants us to see who he is and what he's doing in the midst of all this reality of Jonah's defiance, the belly where it's, or the fish where it's ultimately going to take him. So the question then becomes, what do we actually learn about Jonah's situation and what do we learn about the Lord from this moment of Jonah's judgment and deliverance from the great fish, from his moment of severe mercy? Two things I think we see in Jonah's prayer that reminds us of God's severe mercy. One is that God also employs severe mercy to awaken us. Notice what Jonah says. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol. That's the idea of the grave, the Hebrew word in the grave. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. 
See, Jonah is awakened for the first time in the story. This is the first time we see Jonah address God. Up to this point in the story, Jonah has been like a little kid sitting at odds with God with his back turned. He's like, I don't want anything to do with what you have to tell me to do, Lord. Like, I'm looking this way. I'm not listening to you. I'm not paying attention. doesn't matter what you say to me. You can kill me. I'm all for that. Whatever. I'm heading in this direction. Jonah suddenly is thrown into the water. He's suddenly brought to this moment of desperation. And what happens? In the first time in the story, he turns back. He comes back to begin to engage with God. He recognizes how desperate his situation is, and he cries out to God. See, sometimes severe mercy works in our lives in such a way that it moves us from our spiritual defiance to at least some spiritual openness, to being willing to engage with God in the reality because the situation has become so desperate. And what does Jonah note? That he cries out to God and God hears him. This is a theme we see throughout the Old Testament. That often when God's people found themselves in desperate situations, they would cry out and God would respond. The first time we see this is at the very beginning of the story of Exodus, where God's people are found in slavery in Egypt and they call out to God and God hears them and he sends a deliverer. Moses recounts this reality and begins to cry out to God from the belly of the fish. Jonah moves on in the next several verses to recount the reality of his desperation. All of the imagery that comes in verses 3 through the first half of 6 recount this idea of Jonah's drowning. Right? Listen to it for a second. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." That verse, yet I shall look again in your holy temple. In the ESV, we translate it with a period. In the Hebrew, it actually has a question mark. It's actually kind of the idea of, I don't think I'm ever going to see your temple again, am I? It's like a rhetorical question. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I feel claustrophobic just reading those words, right? Like, he has this whole imagery of like, I am, I am drowning. I am dying. He recognizes the reality of where his spiritual defiance has ultimately brought him. He's in physical peril, literally drowning in the ocean. But he's also awakened to the reality of his spiritual desperation, that because of his defiance, he's been driven away from God, that he has no hope of returning in relationship towards God at this point in the story. Jonah is in desperation. It's what leads him ultimately to cry out to God. And Jonah, though, in this moment, recognizes who's actually behind what he's experiencing. Verse 3 is one of the more challenging notes in the text. Look at the very beginning. For you cast me into the deep. Who cast Jonah into the ocean? Well, in the story, it was the sailors, wasn't it? Now, not only that, who came up with the idea to throw Jonah in the ocean? It was Jonah. So Jonah comes up with the idea. The sailors execute it. They're actually so scared of it. They're like, God, please don't hold this against us because we're throwing him in the ocean. And yet Jonah goes back to God and says, you're the one who threw me in here. You're the one who did this to me. See, what Jonah recognizes is that although we experience great, severe moments of pain in our life, those things do not negate the sovereignty of God. God was not, did not cause Jonah's pain. Jonah was the one that caused Jonah's pain. 
God was not the one ultimately that enacted the throwing of Jonah overboard into the ocean. Yet, God was in control of it every single step of the way. You see, when we talk about the reality that God is sovereign over our lives, what we mean is that God in his great power and his might and his mystery is in control over every event of our lives. There is not one event that you experience in your life that is somehow outside of the plan, purposes, and work of God of his sovereign will over all things. Now, what we mean when we say that is God's sovereignty does not mean that God is the cause of pain and suffering. It is our sin that is the cause, but it also does not mean that God is somehow not in control of it, that God can work through our pain and suffering to accomplish his purposes, such that although God is not the reason that Jonah finds himself in the ocean in terms of Jonah's sin and action, God was behind the entire thing. And when Jonah's in his desperation, that's where he ultimately looks. And what we see, though, is that he's in this moment where he's headed to the bottom of the ocean that Jonah becomes most aware of how spiritually destitute he is. He's literally hitting the bottom. I mean, we already thought he was hitting the bottom early, but here we see this moment. Someone said to me after the sermon last week, they'd done work in recovery, and they used this line that stuck with me. They said, I thought I hit the bottom until I found out that my bottom had a basement. That, that's Jonah. Like Jonah's, like we thought he was already in the bottom of the boat. Now he's like all the way down, literally on the verge of death. That's all the imagery that we have in. And when he's in that moment, it's what awakens him to the reality to call out to God. You see, God often allows severe mercy in our life to take place so that we will awaken to our own spiritual destitution and our need for him. That sometimes the most painful moments in our life are when it brings the most clarity of how insufficient we are and how desperate we are for the intervention of God. I think no one reminds us of this role of pain in God's severe mercy than C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis famously wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And in this book, Lewis wrestles with the question, how can a good God who is all-powerful allow evil and suffering to happen in the world? And if you've ever asked that question or wrestled with that question, I would highly recommend this book as a way to think through it. Lewis does some great work in here. But in chapter 6 of his book, Lewis wrestles with the reality of what pain and the role pain can often play in our lives, those severe moments of life. He begins the chapter by acknowledging that we are created beings. And because we're created beings, our highest good is when our will is aligned under the will of our creator. That we were designed to live in such a way in relationship with God that our wills were aligned with his. What God desires, we would follow. Yet, Lewis goes on to note that the greatest problem that we have is that our wills have turned against God's will. That we, in fact, are not surrendered to God's will, but we pursue our own ways, like Jonah. We think we know better than God. And the question that he then asks is, how do we get brought back from a place of our self-willed ideals back to the place of surrendering to God? In fact, he asks that question where he says, in the world as we know it, the problem is how to recover this self-surrender. We are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. That's a highly countercultural idea. Go anywhere else in the world and they're going to tell you, you just have some minor defects that you kind of need to learn to fix. What Lewis reminds us is, no, 
we have a brokenness in our core that our wills do not want to follow God's will. And when we're in that situation, how is God going to bring us to the attention that we actually need him and need to surrender underneath his purposes and his plans for our life? Lewis goes on to note that God often gives pleasure, that the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance. But so often we mistake pleasure for blessing that it actually doesn't play the role that it should in our life. And so he goes on to recognize pain, severity, suffering are often the moments that God uses the most to get our attention. This is what he says in his one most probably most famous quote in the book. He says, we can rest contentedly in our sins and in, in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched glutton shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lewis would go on to say about the reality that pain is severe. He says just a page or two later, no doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. No one says pain is enjoyable. Lewis isn't saying that either. And it may lead to final and unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. See, pain is often the moments where God most gets our attention. Jonah has been committed to his spiritual defiance. He's been running away from God, even to the point where he's willing to die how does God get our attention in a moment like that when Jonah's brought to the brink of death? When he experiences the greatest pain and the lowest moment. You see, so many of us walk in our own spiritual rebellion, drowning in our sin, not awake and aware of how spiritually destitute we really are. Our world walks around in its sin and brokenness, completely unaware of what they do, not only to each other, but what they do to the God who created them. And yet pain often becomes an instrument through which God seeks to get our attention. When you're asleep, when you're spiritually asleep, you need to be awakened. And what Lewis goes on to say is, when you're drowning, when you're dead, when you're in that moment where you're running away from God, God's got to do something to grab your attention. Right? I mean, it's the great illustration that he uses. God uses pain to look at us and say, wake up! You're dying! You're sinful! You're running away from me! And if you keep doing that, it's going to ruin your life. I know it's loud. That's the point. The point is that pain screams out to us and says, this world is broken. Your soul is broken. You can't continue to live separate from your creator. Come back. It's the means by which God works in our lives to awaken us. That's why it's a severe mercy. Certainly it is severe. But when it awakens us to the desperateness of our situation, it becomes a mercy. And it's also the means by which God works to save us. And that's the thing that we see in the second half. That while God employs severe mercy to awaken us, he also employs severe mercy to save us. Look at the turn that Jonah makes in verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. 
So God steps in to, to Jonah's most lowest moment, and he begins to draw him. Notice the turn. Jonah's been going down. Now Jonah begins to move up. Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. God intervenes in Jonah's lowest moment as he becomes aware and cries out to rescue Jonah from his sinfulness. God is faithful and committed to his people, even in their rebellion, to make a way back to himself. That phrase Jonah uses at the center the hope of steadfast love. That word is, in the Hebrew, the word chesed. It means covenantal love. It's the love, unique, committed love that God has for his people. And what we're reminded, that even in Jonah's greatest rebellion, God's love didn't stop pursuing him. That this severe mercy of the fish is a way for God not to cast Jonah off, but to try to draw him back. How great our Savior that he would work in the moments of our lives to bring us to a spiritual awakeness and then work to draw us back to himself. This is what God does. Maybe you find yourself in a severe moment of your life. Maybe you've experienced that pain, that suffering, that challenge. See it not as God's rejection, but as God's desire to draw you back in, to say there is no idol, nothing of this earth, nothing that you can pursue that will ever satisfy you like I will satisfy you. Turn from your defiance. Turn from your idolatry. Turn from your apathy and come to me. And in Christ Jesus, we experience the rescue of God from our spiritual sinfulness and defiance and that's what we see Jonah do here but the problem is Jonah is still prideful verse 8 and 9 form an interesting response to Jonah like God you you rescued me this is what you do you delivered me and here's where we get into the issue I think of idolatry so Jonah turns, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. You, you can't help in the story to see all of a sudden what on earth is Jonah talking about here. What do you mean? With those, like, God, you saved me, but those people... Those people that worship idols, they're not going to experience your love. Like, and this is Jonah's problem all the way through, right? He does not want to embrace God's love for the people of the world. And so here in this moment, even as he's experiencing the rescue of God, we see that his idol is still intact. Jonah's claim here stands in contrast with a group of people we just met a few verses earlier. Who were the group of people that were willing to forsake their idols to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, and to vow vows to him. The sailors, it was the pagan people of God who we actually see move towards God. And then Jonah, when he's in his moment where God's working to rescue him, looks at them and says, you've forsaken God's covenantal love, but God's with me. And his spiritual bride is brought to the surface once again. I think Jonah in this moment, and you're going to see it in the rest of the book, Jonah is what I call semi-repentant. He's not truly repentant. 
He's semi-repentant, which means he's sorry for his actions that got him in this mess, but he hasn't repented of his sinful heart, which is trusting in something more than it trusts in the Lord. So he's like, hey, yeah, that's right. I should have gone to Nineveh. I should have done that. God employed this severe mercy in my life, and so you know what? All right, God, I'll go to Nineveh. You save me. I'll, I'll follow through with what you ultimately call to need to do. But, but what you see in the book is that that doesn't actually happen. He goes to Nineveh, but his heart's still messed up. And you're going to have to wait for the next few sermons to get there, right? But he's only semi-repentant. He hasn't really confessed the depth of his sin. He's only acknowledged the disobedience of his actions. God often incorporates severe mercy into our lives to bring us to awareness of our sin, to cry out and to turn, not just in our actions, but in our heart to trust in him. Now, sometimes that can take time. Sometimes there is a process in which that happens. You know, the story of Jonah reminds me of another act of severe mercy that God enacted in someone's life on a boat. That man was John Newton. John Newton is the author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And John Newton, before Christ, was a very wicked man. He was a slave trader, pursued all sorts of things against God's ways. In fact, in his own words, he says this of himself. I had the ambition of a Caesar or an Alexander, and I wanted to rank in wickedness among the foremost of the human race. And yet one day in John Newton's life, in the March of 1748, he was sailing on a ship, and his ship was nearly shipwrecked and killed almost all the crew. Yet Newton cried out to God and experienced a severe moment of desperation. God would ultimately rescue Newton and those with him. The storm would die down, and over a month later, they would make it back to Ireland. And Newton notes that this was the moment that he began to spiritually turn towards God. In fact, in his own words, he says, About this time, I began to know that there is a God who hears and answered prayers. It changed Newton's life. But it would be years before he officially surrendered, before he would start to work actually against the slave trade instead of for it. You see, God's severe mercy can awaken us. It can turn us, but we still have to walk the road of repentance. We still have to move towards him in obedience. And certainly that can take time. C.S. Lewis famously said that he was dragged into Christianity kicking and screaming. That God was so severe with him, he finally brought him to a place of repentance. Van Auken took a long time as he wrestled through the pain and reality of losing his, wife, his life. Severe mercy, though, changes our direction. It moves us from the place of defiance to the place of spiritual openness. It's then us, up to us to walk the road of true repentance, to confess our idols, to confess our disobedience, and to trust in the Lord. And Jonah ultimately acknowledges at the end of his prayer that salvation is a work of God and God alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah says. You see, the reality of our lives is that we have no ability to save ourselves. That we in our spiritual defiance are turned from God. The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We sit constantly with our back turned, not wanting to move towards God. And it's only in God's grace and mercy that he does things in our lives to turn us back towards himself. And then he invites us to eat our eggs. 
He invites us to lay down our will and trust his will, to stop trusting in lesser things, to stop trusting and think that we know better and instead trust in Christ and God's plan. To trust in Jesus is to lay down the lordship of your life and to let him rule over you, your plans, your ways, to let him be the Lord of your life. You see, Jonah's only semi-repentant, but the good news for you and I today is that we can be fully repentant, that you and I can experience a salvation through Jesus Christ. Because the truth and reality is he came to take the judgment you deserve. That watery grave that you belonged in, like Jonah, Jesus went into that grave, and he didn't stay in that grave. Three days later, he came out and said, I've conquered Satan's sin and death. And if you trust in me, you can be forgiven of your sin, and you can begin to experience new life. You can put your faith in God alone and not some lesser thing. You can turn from your sin and experience the hope of redemption. But friends, that's a work that's got to play deep in our hearts. That's got to be us coming to a place out of the severe mercy of God where we're willing to lay down our arms and say, I have nothing in me that can save me. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. I'll close with this. You're probably thinking, man, you've already gone long enough. You're just closing now? Oh, sorry. But I want to share a little bit of, because I resonate so much with Jonah's story, and I want to share a little bit of just my own heart in this, and I hope you hear this right. I'm not trying in any way to put, this, put myself on a pedestal of pride. I, in fact, it's the opposite. But I've just seen so much the way God's severe mercy can work. And my hope is, just in sharing a brief moment of my story, it might encourage some of you who find yourself in the same place. See, I spent a long time in my life pursuing an idol that wasn't God. Like many men of my generation, I made sex the ultimate God of my life. And it caused me to run from God's plan and purposes in all sorts of ways. It caused untold damage to my relationships, to my view of myself, to my relationship with God. And there were so many moments in the journey as I followed that idol that I was semi-repentant, that I saw the action and thought, I don't want to do that action. I know where that's getting me. I'm going to turn from it. But I wasn't repentant of the heart. I wasn't willing to fully surrender myself to the Lord. And then God, God brought me to a severe a moment of severe mercy when I sat at a table at odds with him, metaphorically, where I put myself in a situation where I almost compromised my marriage the first year I was married to Alicia. I almost lost everything. And in that moment, my sin was exposed for all that it was in my heart. I realized I was worshiping something other than the Lord. I realized that I'd reached the bottom, at least as close as you can get to it in that moment with the idol that I pursued. And yet somehow out of the kindness of his heart, God showed me mercy. It wasn't because of what I wanted. And if I wanted it, I would have lost everything. God somehow showed me enough mercy to waken me up and turn me back to himself. And it would take me a while before I was able to confess, before I was able to 
reconcile with Alicia before I was able to walk that journey back of relinquishing that idol from my life and pursuing what God's intention was for me. But on the other side of that, I found freedom. I found that sin didn't have to have power over my life. I found a God who was way better than any sexual pursuit I ever went after. And he became the thing I pursue. He is my portion. He's what matters to me most. And what breaks my heart is I know some of you have experienced the severe mercy of God. You've been brought to the lowest point of brokenness in your life. And God is inviting you to lay your idol down. Not just to slap a band-aid of, I'll change my behavior, but to confess that you've been loving something more than you love Jesus. And when you're willing to take that step, and he's right there to meet you and rescue you. He's right there to bring you from that place, from the lowest bottom, to move you up towards his glorious kingdom. That's the kind of savior that he is. And it wasn't because of me. It's because Jesus is a good savior, and he delivers us from our lowest points. If you find yourself in that place this morning, I want to invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you have that area of your heart you haven't surrendered, God wants to invite you to surrender it to him. It's the only path that you'll find to the freedom that you so much desire. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you that you're the kind of God that meets us in the lowest points of our life that you love us enough to not allow us to continue to walk in our spiritual defiance and sin, but you even use moments, severe moments, to awaken us to our need for you. Thank you that you're a God that hears, that as we call out to you, you hear and deliver. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. I continue to pray for my own heart. In those areas of our lives that we have not surrendered to you, would you continue to bring us to a place of surrender? Would you continue to say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Let me follow your will, not my will. Continue to rescue us and draw us closer to you. I pray even now as we sing, Holy Spirit, would you work? Not just the deep work of conviction, but that deep work of calling us back to fix our eyes on Christ, to trust in him, to surrender ourselves to him and experience the deliverance he offers. We worship you now and sing to you together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.